Well, good morning, Southern Hills. It is a privilege to be here today with you. My name is Elias Diaz, and uh, I am grateful for the opportunity to come and minister the Word of God to you all this morning. I um, was grateful early early this morning. I got a text from Ted. He's uh, doing well. They, are, they were in uh, Florida at about 6.30 this time, waiting for a flight in the airport. Gave me a very positive and encouraging note, um, uh, reminding us that uh, we are in his prayers and uh, we'll hopefully get him back to us soon here. And I'll tell you, I was very impressed coming into town this morning. Uh, the first service arranged that several hot air balloons would welcome us. And I thought, I thought this church is just so classy that they would do that. <clears throat> so, um, and then I learned that you laid out a complete meal for us this afternoon and, and so you're, uh, you're top-notch, but uh, it, is, uh, it is a privilege, as I said, to be here. I want to also uh, welcome my wife and daughter, Sarah and Savannah, who are with us this morning, and uh, we're, we're glad to be able to worship uh, with you. As uh, has been said already, I am a police officer. I've been, uh, I've been with the Rapid City Police Department for, oh, over two decades, we'll just say, and uh, yeah, got to see a lot of stuff. And really, it has been an experience that has brought me closer to God through the years. Um, amazing, amazing providence watching how God um, unfolds his will being used as an instrument in that way. And um, so at any rate, um, I'm honored to be here. And uh, if you want to make your way to the book of Ephesians, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at a couple of texts in, in chapter one of that book. <clears throat> and... Uh, as you're turning there, I, uh, I've decided to entitle this morning's message, Who's Running the Church? And it's a, it's a very important question for us because if you haven't noticed by now, we are in a time of transition here at Southern Hills. I've, I've had the, uh, the privilege to be part of probably, well, this would be the third transition that I have have watched and and it um, it's very interesting it always comes with a sense of change obviously and it, it sometimes will even come for some with a sense of uncertainty maybe some may have a sense of instability and insecurity as the unknown kind of looms around us and uh, for others they may be feeling even a sense of loss I mean to uh, attempt to follow a pastor of 32 years, uh, big shoes to fill, no doubt. And some may be thinking that that is uh, a sad time or, or concern for the future and concern for the church. Others may have a sense of feeling somewhat discouraged, and they may question the need to even come. Why should I come? We don't have a pastor who's going to notice if I'm here or there. I can kind of trickle away, and, and uh, that would not be a, a good view to have. And then still others, there may be some who would see this as an opportune time to seize the opportunity to, to perhaps control the church and to perhaps exert an influence that they have maybe always wanted to have upon the church, and now this may be the opportunity that they have always waited for. Times of transition can bring out all kinds of emotions and all kinds of reactions in this regard. And it can be a very emotional time in the church. 
And all of these issues beg the question before us today, who's running the church? And it's a question that Ephesians 1 actually answers for us. In this uh, really extended prayer of the Apostle Paul before us, he is praying that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that we may have real knowledge and discernment and a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And namely, uh, we're, we're going to be talking and answering that question today, but we're going to be speaking of the issue of headship. We're going to be speaking of the issue of, of authority. And we're going to be answering that question, and it really shouldn't be a surprise to us when we talk about this issue of headship. We speak of this common in our language. We speak of a head of state or a head of a corporation or, or a head of a country, a governing head. And it shouldn't surprise us when we hear the words of our Lord in Matthew 16 when he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And hereby saying and claiming sole ownership and complete responsibility over his church. I think you're getting the, the point today. My goal is really simple. It's one goal. And that goal is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst today. I want you to have a glimpse of the Lord Jesus that perhaps you maybe haven't seen before. Or perhaps you, you know is there, but we're going to refresh and we're going to see how glorious is this head of the church. And this morning, I'm going to give you five characteristics of the headship of Christ that are found here in Ephesians chapter 1. Five characteristics of Christ's headship over our church, church locally, church universal, that speak to proper placement and recognition of the Lord being the Lord of the church. Would you look at verse 20 as we begin this morning? And I'm going to begin in the middle of the text if you'll follow along. The apostle writes, He, that is God the Father, raised him, that is God the Son, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he, that is God the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, that is God the Son, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. May God bless the inspired and inerrant and infallible word of the living God. Well, let's take a look at the first of these five characteristics that jumps out at the text in us here. Who's running the church, and what kind of leader do we have, actually? Well, verse 20 tells us here, it tells us, first of all, that Christ is running the church, and that Christ is our living head. He is our living head. Would you look at verse 20? It clearly says that he raised him from the dead. God raised Christ by exerting his power upon him and calling him to life after death, declaring Christ as our living and abiding 
head, our living leader. He is a living head. Folks, he is not a dead head. He is alive, he is well, and he is reigning in state. He is not a lifeless, responseless corpse of a leader. Perhaps you've worked for leaders that, that would be described as such. Leaders whose heart are beat, is beating, but who have no life and who, who exert no vibrant impa uh, impact and influence upon the organization, but who are basically dead heads not our Christ, he is alive. Now, without diverting too much, this is a known fact that the basis of the resurrection of Christ is the entire basis of our faith, as we know. You will remember the, the radical transforming power that the resurrection had on Peter himself. Remember Peter, who was afraid to even talk about Christ to the little girl that came to him that one day? Peter is later seen in the second chapter of the book of Acts, thundering forth a sermon on the life of Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and he, he picks up in verse 22, he's calling out the men of Israel, listen to these words, he says, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. I mean, the, the radical power that Peter is now preaching with whereas before he was afraid of a girl saying you were with him weren't you oh yeah he's with him now and you put him to death he said but God raised him up again God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power later he says because you will not abandon my soul to Hades or allow your holy one to undergo decay he picks up this theme again in his second debut sermon in Acts chapter 3 and uh, verse 14. Similar, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of our fathers, he's, he's reviewing church history. And, and his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him, but you disowned the holy and righteous one asking for a murderer to be granted to you. Do you hear all the, the direct address, second person, you, 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 you? That's preaching. That, that's addressing the hearers with what needs to be said. But you put to death, verse 15, the prince of life. How ironic. You put to death the prince of life? How do you do that? You can't do that because the very next portion is the, the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. You see, this occurred very shortly after that resurrection. There were people alive that saw him live, saw him die, saw him live again, and that's why he could thunder forth these truths. And I could take you to verse after verse, Romans 1.4, 1 Corinthians 15.14. Remember that verse where Paul says, if Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain, you're still in your sins. He has to have been raised Otherwise, redemption is not even possible. So the point is this, is that as we ask, well, who's running the church? Christ is running the church, and Christ is alive as the church's living head. Now think about this for a moment. Name one founder of any religion throughout all history whose founder is still alive a generation later. I mean, whatever you may be thinking, Siddhartha, the founder of Buddhism, dead. Muhammad, founder of Islam, dead. Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, 
dead. Mary Morse, Baker, Patterson, Eddy, founder of Christian Science, dead. Herbert W. Armstrong, Worldwide Church of God, Worldwide Church of God, dead. The Lord Jesus Christ, founder of Christianity, alive. Alive and well. Alive and in session, serving as our current living, breathing, moving, vibrant head of the church. Christ is our living ch uh, head, and Christ is running his church through the power of the resurrection that infuses through his very life blood. That's point number one. Point number two, in addition to Christ being a living head, would you note the text? It says that Christ is also an enthroned head. He is a living head and he is an enthroned head. Look at verse 20, the later part of that verse. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We're just going to go up and up and up here. He, he seated him at his right hand. To seat someone, you know this, when you are being seated at an event, perhaps at a banquet or perhaps a, a very nice restaurant, the host or hostess will come up to you and they will, they will take you back to a seat. And depending, depending what is available, you may have a very nice seat. You might have a seat of honor at a certain banquet. And here, God the Father seats his son. And in an amazing way, he gives him this place of honor, a position of honor. And he was not placed in some overflow section where you kind of you put the, the low bidders who got the tickets for the event. He places him at his right hand, the position of highest honor and the position of highest authority. The right hand known as the hand of strength. If you are a right-handed individual, you know your right hand has dexterity to it. But in, in ancient times, the right hand not only meant strength and dexterity, but it meant authority. Any, any king would sit his prince to the right hand, meaning he acts with my authority. He executes my will. I don't have to move. My prince moves for me. And this is Jesus. And this is your living and enthroned head at the right hand of the Father on high. You may think of Psalm 110 and verse 1. Follow this line of thought. Psalm 110, verse 1. Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Very fascinating words going on there. If you read it in English, you wouldn't pick that up. You would read something like, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. But when you understand that verse a little bit, what's going on there? Almost an overture of the Trinity, even from the Old Testament. And there are many others, Romans 8, 34, Colossians 1, set your affections above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And verse upon verse upon verse, that is the location of Christ, this position of honor. He is not seated at God's left hand. He is not seated behind God. He is not seated beneath God. He is enthroned at the right hand of God, vested with all authority. And this is a place of preeminence. Would you look at the text there in verse 20? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Christ now having authority to administer the entire governance of the universe. 
heavenly places, this place where God's infinite glory dwells, place of power and majesty. And Christ now takes this position to himself. Can you think of a higher place to be than to be at the right hand of God in the heavenly places? Our church is run by a living head, by an enthroned head. And can I give you a third one? The third one is that our church is run by a ranking head. A little bit different nuance here. A ranking head. What does that mean? It means he holds rank. Um, whenever I, especially with my line of work, whenever I see uh, an individual in uniform, one of the first things I will do is I will look to the collar of that individual or I will look at the, uh, the, the lapel of that individual's uniform or I will look at the, the individual's epaulets if they're an officer or sleeves and the rank insignia may not be very visible to the average person in public but to those who understand the, the ranking systems you see right away oh that's a captain or, or, or that's a that's a colonel or, or that's a general and some people will say how do you know well his insignia tells you and it tells you how high he is on the pecking order or the food chain if you will we have other names for it as well but <laughs> it, it, it designates rank and in an amazing way, verse 21, I'm going to show you, you're about to see a succession of ever-increasing planes and levels and layers and echelons of rank that are unheard of to the, to the human thinking. This is amazing. Would you look at verse 21 here? It says, uh, after he had, he had seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, look at verse 21. I love this. Far above. You got, that's the controlling word of, of verse 21 here, far above. He seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above. How far is far above? Really far. It's exceedingly far. It's far and away. It's way beyond any other, well, they list it there, rule and dominion and power and authority. You could say that far above is supreme to the superlative. There is no farther above than, than you can get here, and we'll see this in just a moment. This is as far as somebody who is experiencing infinite exaltation can get. It can't get any higher than this. And what is he far above, verse 21? It says, he has been seated far above all rule. Our case. This word speaks to domains. It speaks, the word actually has its root as uh, corners or extremities. And you, you've heard in history people say, to the furthest corners of the earth or the, the edges of the universe, right? And and this is the idea that's utilizing this concept that is just the extreme most areas territorially speaking. He's so far above that. As far as you can imagine the world stretches or the universe stretches, he's above it. Note also in the text it says he's far above all authority. Exousias, uh, authority or power, authority to act, authority to do as one pleases, authority to rule, authority to govern. So not only is he above the territories, but he's above the government of all of those territories. What governs the, the rotation of the planets and the solar system? That's an extremity in our minds, but what is governing that? 
Well, whatever is governing it, Christ is above that which is governing it. And it goes on, would you note that it's not all rule and authority, but it's also all power. This is the word dunamis, which we get the word dynamite from. Explosive power, mighty force, strength, ability, energy, efficacy. It's used of the power of a mighty army that moves in on a territory. He's above it. He's above the power of armies. Would you note another designation here? He is far above dominions. Curiates, from which we get the word curios, which means lord. You've heard of this? Lords, uh, governments, domains, lordships. It's used uh, frequently of the divine angelic designations in the, um, in the order of angels. You've heard of angels and archangels, etc., etc. He's above it all. And, and this just keeps going on and on. If you think that's not enough, uh, look at the text again. It's, it's above every rule and authority and power and dominion. And in case I'm just leaving anything out, every name that is named. Every name that is named. What does this mean? Well, it means that if you have a name, Christ is above you. And so whatever your name is, whether king or prince or judge, or pharaoh, or czar, or prime minister, or president, or ruler, or dictator, or whatever, Christ is above you. And whatever man's pedestrian titles may be on earth, they are outranked by the ranking head who, by the way, runs the church. Lutheran commentator Lenski on this text writes, with that rule, there naturally goes the corresponding authority. With that authority, the corresponding power. With that power, the corresponding lordship. And with that lordship, the corresponding name or title. And I believe what he's referring to there, if you want to flip over to, to the book of Philippians, there's echoes of Philippians 2 here. You're probably familiar with this text where Paul is instructing us how we ought to treat one another and how we ought to regard each other in the church. And he's talking about being like Christ and being like-minded, excuse me, being united in spirit, not acting from selfishness and humility, um, not looking out for merely your own interests, but also the interests for others. <clears throat> and then he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, and he talks about his humiliation, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Of course, we know he didn't empty himself of his divine attributes. He emptied himself of the independent use of those attributes. He surrendered the use of them to the Father. Being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself. And, and we see him taking these steps down, 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 condescending into the earth. And then in verse 9, therefore God also, here it is again, highly exalted him and bestowed on him note this the name the name jesus got a name it bestowed on him the name which is above every name and note this verse 10 that at the name of jesus every knee should bow those under heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess and people will say well there it is the name's jesus right and when people hear the name Jesus, they bow, or they will bow. 
I'd like to question that interpretation because there are a lot of people named Jesus. <clears throat> in fact, in many Hispanic cultures, it's a very common name to name your son Jesus after the Lord Jesus. But I can tell you, people don't go around bowing down to people named Jesus or Jesus. So what is this name that is being spoken of here? <clears throat> And that every tongue, verse 11, should confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Does the light bulb come on? That's the name. Because at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, people ought to bow, and we do bow. And, and so, and this is, of course, to the glory of God the Father. He's just in all and, and having this all happen for his son and for what he accomplished for us on the cross. But back to our text in Ephesians, we just have this ever ascending uh, level and echelon of, of rank here, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. And just when you think you've had enough, he adds more. Look at the text. Not only in this age, but in the one to come. So just in case we're leaving anybody out who thinks they might have a rank higher than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's including it all. In this age, but also the age to come, what does this mean, folks? No term limits. No term limits. He is eternal. He is timeless. He is never to be brought down. He is never to be impeached. He will never step aside. He will never be told to have a seat other than at the throne of God. And he will never be voted out. What, what wonderful news this is for Christians. What wonderful news this is for Christians asking who's running the church. Who would we want to run the church? Who would be better at running the church than the Lord of all? And so it is in this age referring to time and all the dimensions of human history, but the one to come refers to that which hasn't happened yet eternity future, which we haven't seen yet, which no doubt includes the return of Christ and his reign on earth to sum up all things and literally put all things under his feet, the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. He shall reign forever and ever and ever, says Handel, says scripture. He is our eternal ranking, ruling Head. And speaking of ruling, not only do we have a living, enthroned, and ranking head, verse 22 gives us our fourth characteristics, characteristic of our Lord and him being head of the church. Christ is our ruling head. He's living, he's enthroned, he's ranking. It's one thing to have the rank, but it's another thing to do something with the rank, right? Right? Because you can look all pretty in the uniform and you can have the, the epaulets and all of the fancy pins, but if you're just a poster child for authority, do you really have the authority? If you, if you never act with the authority? Well, verse 22, he actually rules now. Would you note it? And he put all things in subjection under his feet. All things. All things visible, all things invisible. All things human, all things inhuman. All things angelic, all things demonic. 
All things means all things. In heaven and in earth and in hell, it is all under the feet of Christ. And it is as if that, that king here, um, it, it is in subjection to Christ. In ancient times, a king, when he would win a battle, he would have the, the vanquished king, his enemy, brought into the royal court. And he would have that king brought in and laid down before him. And in a ceremonial picture of absolute victory and conquering of that first king, he would place his foot on the neck of that vanquished king. He wouldn't break his neck or kill him, but it was a picture to his own subjects as well as the subjects of this king, you've been conquered. You have a new ruler now. And this is the idea when it speaks of Christ having all things put under his feet. Christ, as our victor, has put his feet upon the neck of the entire world and, and the universes that exist. And this is our Lord of the church. In subjection here is the term hupotasso in Greek, and it's a military term. It has the idea of lining up subordinates underneath you. And in, a, in, a, in some amazing way, God the Father lines up the entire universe under Christ. And he exalts him to the point where he is this victorious king putting his foot on the neck of all things that would rebel against him. It's no surprise to us then in Matthew 28, verse 18, where our Lord says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, we always think of Matthew 28, the words that come after that, go therefore into all the world and make disciples. And that is what we do. That is a significant component of the local church and what we are called to do. But before we go out and do that, we have to hear the Lord of the church self-description here. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Think about that for a moment. Who can say that? Who can say such an astonishing thing as Christ says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? Or I like Revelation 19.12, where it says that Christ comes back on his white horse and he has many diadems on his head. Diadems are crowns signifying authority. There are many crowns just stacked up, kind of like checkers. I can just see it in my mind. There's just crown upon crown upon crown. And it's just these, this amazing stack of authority to this incomprehensible height. And so it humbles us because those of us who have authority, whether it is in the government profession or whether it is in your business or whether it is in this church, we understand that our authority is only delegated authority, right? It is only authority that comes down from the one who has supreme authority anyway. And so we handle authority carefully. We handle responsibility very carefully, knowing that it is delegated authority always. And it is a reflection of him how we use it. So pastor or no pastor, Jesus is Lord of his church. He is the living head of the church. He is the enthroned head of the church. He is the ranking head of the church. He is the ruling head of the church. And I got to give you this fifth one before we depart today. This is probably the most intimate of them all. Christ is our, and really I need to underscore our, 
corporate head. He is our corporate head. Now, please don't misunderstand this word because when we think of corporate, we think of like maybe GM or we think of a, a corporation of some sort, and I'm not talking about that. I'm not even talking about the church as an organization because really the church is an organism. It's alive. Corporate in the traditional classic use of the word comes from the word corporal, which means body, physical. And the fact that he is our corporate head, look at the text here in verse 22, this exalted, enthroned, above all powers and dominions, uh, this age and the age to come, and who has the entire universe put under his feet, and look what God did with this Christ. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, to you. You're the church. You are the body of Christ. There's many scriptures that speak about uh, Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church. Uh, Ephesians 5.30, we are members of his body. You're his body. He's the head, but, but you're the body. And you've been, you've been given this living, enthroned, ranking, ruling head as your leader in the church. Now, to be sure, that leader, Ephesians 5, we won't go there, but that leader then designates other leaders who lead the church, pastors, elders, teachers, overseers, prophets. They're all, they're all listed in there. Uh, the gifts of the church, but uh, they all come down from Christ who is our corporate head. He's a, he's a living, ruling, but personal leader in the church. This is our gift. The headship of Christ is a gift to the church, and what a gift it is. He gives us the source, he is the source of life, giving us life. He is the source of leadership, giving us leadership. He is the source of wisdom, giving us wisdom beyond the ages, and the source of love, teaching us to love one another. He is the source of peace and the source of true significance. If you're struggling with significance in your life, you need to plug in to this life indeed, which is life in Christ. He infuses all of this, and in an amazing way, it's just given to the church. It's just given to you and I. It's, a, it's an amazing picture of intimacy here. He's given this to the church. He has never abdicated or, or relinquished his, his rule in our lives or in the church. And we would do well not to usurp his authority in the church. We are all but under shepherds at best. We are all servants, really, of him. But he's given it to the church, which is his body. And the intimate, intimate picture here of the, the connectedness between the head and the body. There is nothing more intimate as you consider a head as the mission control center of a human being and, and sparking the, the life and, and, and sending out the commands and the orders for the body to move and live and to have being. Nothing more intimate. And yet, I would also add, there is nothing more grotesque, is there, of the idea of a severed head from a body. God forbid that you'd ever have to see that. But there's something seriously wrong when the head is severed from the body. And yet, 
Many churches in our day, especially the modern church, many churches gladly sever the head from the body when it comes to the church and say, we're going to run church our way. We're going to do it the way we want to do it. And typically that means worldly practices come in and we, we make, make ourselves very friendly to the world. And so the world's going to like us. The world's going to come in and we're going to like everything about us because if they'll like us, maybe they'll like our Jesus who, by the way, is this puny kind of kind of wimpy guy that says a lot of weird things, but hopefully we don't have to talk about all those weird things he says. Hopefully they just really like us, and then they'll like Jesus. Is that the Jesus that we see in the scripture? Is that the high and enthroned, exalted? Loved ones, you don't have to apologize in the least for Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns. We ought to be proud to speak boldly of his position and then to know all of that is just given to you as the church he's yours he's yours what a picture of intimacy but don't decapitate the head as if you could but people try and this is the idea of the lukewarm church of laodicea remember jesus is on the outside of the church i stand at the door and knock a lot of people think, well, Jesus wants to, you know, he's knocking on the door of your heart and all of that. And there's an element where, you know, we all have, you know, Jesus come into my life or something like that. I'm not mad at that illustration, but, but don't miss the point. He's knocking on the door of the church saying, hello, you're having church, but you're missing the head. You're missing the Lord of the church. And I'm on the outside knocking and I'll come in. And he wants this intimacy to dine with us, to sup with us, he says. And he's the Lord of the church, but he's, he's part of the church. He, he wants to be intimate with the church, supplying it life. And then just as we wrap up here, he has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. I love this the fullness of him who fills all and all. Don't miss this. The head is given to the body, that's you, and the body here is described as the fullness of him who fills all and all. This, this is just almost incomprehensible that, that you as individual members of the body become a corporate whole and you function as the fullness of Christ on earth. I mean, think about it. How else are people ever going to see Christ unless they see his body? And this is a connection we have to understand. We're not the head, but we are the body and we must function effectively as a body. And he has given us his word to help us do that. The fullness of him who fills all in all. He pours his entire self into you and I. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you know that? If Christ is in you, if you have truly come to faith in him, and if he is truly your Lord, you've repented of your sins and you've embraced him, Christ indwells you by the Holy Spirit and he lives in you and he begins to manifest his fullness in you, but not alone. You can't just have one member of the body. You have to have several members of the body so the body can function. And we see this in other portions of scripture here. And I just trust today that you do know that Christ in that way. And that you don't just view him as this high and austere, fearsome and awesome force as he is. But you also view him as intimately and personally connected to you as his body. 
And if for any foolish reason you have not surrendered to this Christ, I would call you this day to do so. I would call you to throw away your pride and, and throw away all of the, the confidence that you have in running your own life when the Lord of the church, the Lord of the world, the Lord of the universe wants to have a say in your life. Or are you doing just pretty good as you are? And, and how's that going to work out for you? I mean, we've seen all of this. And so really, don't be so foolish as to try to flee from the ultimate exalted being of the universe who, who wants nothing more than to have that relationship with you in his church, part of that universal whole, but manifested locally. I, I frequently speak on this issue of local involvement in the local church because I get it. There's a universal church out there. From the beginning of time till now, there's, there's the church universal. But I will submit to you that you can only see the church universal where? In the church local. And, and that's you, and that's I, and that's playing our, our part. As we wrap this up, when I began, I asked the question, who's running the church? And I think we've learned from Scripture who is running the church. And Christ will run his church whether we have a pastor or not. He will. Now, that won't go for long because Christ has also designed a way in which his church will be run, and that is through pastors and elders and local, local leadership. That will come, and be confident that will, that will happen. I've seen it happen every time. And you need to hold fast and not be discouraged and not be worried Christ is at the helm. You see, it's when we lose the picture of the exalted Christ and we get all weirded out and, oh, what's going to happen? And I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen these weird power plays happen. I've seen people give up on the church. I've seen people, I've seen people get discouraged in the church, especially at times in transition. I'm saying there's no call for that. There's no reason for that. Christ is here. He is leading. He is amongst us. And can I just add you're, you're part of something really big here in the church. You, you may think, well, you know, we're small, we're down, we're, you know, there's not a lot of, whatever you may think about yourselves as a body, you are part of something really big. And, and, and you don't have to be the, the front runner of the, of the procession. You, you can just be glad that you're in the parade. I mean, this is this is who we are, and we're his body wherever we find ourselves, and whatever gifts attend our local manifestation of the body. So don't take the church lightly. Don't have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. I can come or go. I can be part. I cannot. I can commit. I cannot. Commit. This is the best thing going on earth. And, and don't reinvent church, by the way. Don't, don't reinvent it after your own imaginations. The Lord of the church has spoken. And he speaks through scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, just like we displayed today through godly individuals who will teach and preach and counsel and guide and instruct and lead the people of God. He will provide and be those people who are responsive to that, the spirit-filled, spirit-led believers, not the spirit-quenching individuals. I've worked with both. I, I love to be around spirit-filled, spirit-led people who don't have a dog in this fight. And I've been around others that 
They quench the spirit. And it's hard to describe, but you know when the spirit is quenched, do you not? You know when the spirit is, is reigning freely in a congregation, and you know when it's quenched, and, and there's just the, the sense of this is not right. And, and you should know that because you have the spirit within you to discern the difference. So as we consider the church, and as we consider setting our hearts on things above and not on the earth, always looking up to the author and the perfecter of our faith, our head, our living and abiding, reigning and ruling and ranking and corporate head. May you rely upon him. May you abide in him. May you find your source of life in him. May your strength always and ever be in him. And I just ask you this morning, is that your heart cry today? Is that your truest desire today to rely completely upon the Lord of the church. And while doing that, you promote and you advance and you strengthen and you cause the church to be healthy. And you don't encumber the church. And you allow it to be what it is designed to be. Loved ones, don't give up on the church. We know that she's not what she needs to be. We know that she's not what she's going to be, right? One day. She is what she is by the grace of God, and it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to be part of the local church. May God continue to bless and guide Southern Hills E Free. I hope some of this was helpful to you today as we look into the eyes of the exalted Christ. May, he be, may, may we each own him personally as part of our body. We pray this. Uh, let's, let's go to pray, a prayer right now. Father, I, I pause to just give you thanks for this local congregation, that local manifestation of your universal church. And Lord, uh, I just pray for every member here, um, wherever their hearts may be, wherever, whatever concerns they may be having about the future, we thank you that you have already shown signs of providing for this church. And Lord, you have, you have given this body 32 years of reliable reliable teaching and truth and shepherding and pastoring and lord as we look back that is also the confidence that allows us to look forward help everybody to come to solid grips with their role in this body help each person here to understand their gifts and apply them and to stir up those gifts in service of you may they encourage one another May they find strength from one another. And Lord, we also know that uh, you mean only good for your church. And we long for the day that we as your church are made like that spotless bride with garments of white to be reunited, uh, reunited with you in the air uh, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We long for that day, Lord. And even so, come, Lord Jesus, quickly, we pray. Amen.